economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel, chair of economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Don't forget about young Jacob. We don't have to call him young Jacob anymore. So Jacob, young Coddell, Jacob. Jacob Coddell, our undergraduate scholar who's now start in his sophomore year, is also on the podcast today with us. So we got our full Gortney team here. We wanted to talk about potential wealth tax. So right now, wealth is not taxed. What we do have is an income tax. And so you guys, our listeners are familiar with that, settling up with the government on April 15th uh, based on your income. And there's, you know, concessions and tax write-offs and all that stuff. All of that's based on on your income. Your wealth, however, is uh, not taxed. And so think of wealth as what your financial net worth is another uh, word for it. Sometimes equity or consumer equity is another one Dave Ramsey uses. So basically the dollar value of what you own today minus what you owe today. So if you have debts on your house, so it's like the home equity in your house, uh, but now we take it uh, across the board with all of your assets and liabilities. And of course the wealth tax is purporting to just hit those evil rich people like the super uber rich. Um, We got to, you know, hit the billionaires for sure. And then probably the multimillionaires. So for us regular folk, uh, if you're just a regular old millionaire and you've got two million to the good, you're probably okay for now until they implement it and they figure out that they're not raising as much money as they thought. And so now they have to start dipping into the to the millionaire level, which is the slippery slope. I think that something like this uh, could potentially lead to. And so lots of other issues surrounding the wealth tax and, and um, there's a lot, there's debate even among economists. And so that's part of what we're going to talk about today. And Justin, you want to lead us off with, with what you uh, ran into? Yeah. So I saw a, a tweet by Paul Graham, who's an American venture capitalist. He founded a company called BiaShare, I think, that he eventually sold to Yahoo for like $50 million. Um, He runs Y Combinator or founded Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator in the Bay Area. Um, And he also started Hacker News, which is one of the most influential, you know, news posting boards in in tech. So he's in tech. He's one of those guys that's up there. It's like, you know, these are the people that, uh, you know, are looked up to in the community. And he had a post that said, hey, well, Let's look, let's model what a wealth tax does, what a wealth tax does, because I think people don't understand the degree to which it can eat into what uh, somebody's wealth is. And so really quickly, just uh, I want to go back to what you said about wealth, that it's the dollar value of what you own, right? Uh, you know, and against your debt or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's a great point to make that it is the dollar value of what you own. And really, wealth is what you own, and it's denominated in dollars, right? But 
uh, the wealth itself doesn't consist in in the dollars, right? It consists mm -hmm. of the things that you own. <clears throat> the so, so to speak, the value to society, the usefulness of the asset or that sort of thing. Well, all I'm just getting at is that it's not, uh, a wealth tax doesn't take dollars away from billionaires who have dollars stuffed under their beds. Uh, uh, it, okay. it is a tax on everything they own. And Got a lot it. of times what they own are, you know, what Marx would call the means of production, like factories, you know? Mm -hmm. And so... Paul Graham says, let's imagine you start a company in your 20s and uh, it's a very successful company. And let's... So this is Jacob Caudill, graduates with an economics major, starts a business in yes. his 20s. Here he goes. Got it. Now, cool. he owns this company, right? Um, and let's just say he owns 100% of the stock in this company. And then Paul Graham says, all right, let's just assume that that's Jacob's wealth and that he lives for another 60 years. Okay. Right? Now let's look at the different wealth tax rates and see at the end of those 60 years, how much of the stock of his company he is left with. Okay. Does that make sense? And so he starts out by saying, well, uh, you know, what if we had a wealth tax of 0.1%? And that sounds really, really low. Yeah, we right? should definitely do that. That's uh, so low. Well, over that 60 years, the government is going to take <laughs> 6% of uh, Jacob's stock uh, or accumulating the 0.01 over the 60 years yes because that gets excised every year yes. right yeah. if you go to 0.05 percent which still sounds really low the government's taking 26 percent ah, of jacob's stock so it goes up fast that's yeah. still less than one percent that's an interesting way to look at it yeah. if you go to one percent it's 45 percent two percent is 70 percent uh, and if you go all the way up to five percent uh, Jacob is going to be left with a mere 5% of his stock at the end of his 60 years. The government will take 95% of that. Um, and so uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that insofar as, you know, a company or, you know, Jacob's wealth, if his wealth is stock in that company, and if that company is actually providing a service to the community, which it is, if it's a, if it's a company that's performing well, that means the government is just eating that um, and eating that, at a rate that actually is pretty high for, I mean. But they're doing really good stuff with the money, right? The government? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Now, um, look, um, <laughs> it seems like it would be a really, really poor thing to do to set up an institution such that, you know, it eats anything successful and eats it right. at such a large rate. Right. Um, and again, look, the the stock that Jacob's going to have to sell, you know, he can either sell stock and then pay that money to the government, right? Or, you know, maybe he can just pay the government the stock or the government just comes and takes those assets. Mm -hmm. um, you know what? Now, is, is the government running his, his company? Uh, <laughs> right. Do we want the government right. running these companies? Well, if we did, then why not let the government run the companies from the beginning, right? Yeah. But we don't want to do that. That's obviously a bad idea. So this seems like it reduces to that bad idea over time. And what I think... One of the most important things about this that Graham gets at is, look, these things that seem like really small numbers can have a really big effect mm -hmm. when they're done over and over every year. Mm -hmm. You know, the difference between 0.1 and 0.05%, you know, where the government's taking 6% versus 26%. Yeah. That's pretty drastic. Yeah. Well, and go ahead, Peter. Um, and something I was going to say on top of that is one thing that we shouldn't expect. And so that model is very good at demonstrating exactly the point, right? Which is that even a small percentage is going to make a, a big difference over Jacob's, Jacob's entire life. 
But something else we should expect is that uh, Jacob's not exactly going to take this line down. I don't think that Jacob is, especially if the tax rate's going to make him lose 80% of his wealth, he, he might be a, a little bit uh, tricky. He might beha- behave a little differently after this tax is uh, passed in. Uh, there was a great debate by uh, Emmanuel Saez, Greg Mankiw, and Larry Summers, all three well-known economists uh, debating this issue. And what uh, both Mankiw and Summers pointed out is that what this encourages, how Jacob could avoid this is instead of accumulating this nice nest egg over his lifetime that gets eaten away at over time, instead what he could do is he could sell his stock and he could buy different things. He could have his company go on lavish vacations that lowers the profitability and lowers you know, the amount of wealth he's going to end up. And so instead of having the company, you know, grow every year and provide more and more services, instead all the CEO or all the CEO and all the managers go on a nice vacation at the end of the year. And then he would have a lower tax rate. Even more so and even more problematic, one of the biggest arguments for this wealth tax is that these billionaires have too much political influence. Well, another thing that you can do if you're going to be taxed your wealth at a very high rate is you can actually turn your wealth into political influence by donating to causes that you believe in. And some of those causes could be good. Bill Gates does a lot of good causes that he donates to that comes out of his wealth. But you could spend more and more of your wealth. You can spend that wealth away to, you know, influence politicians. And so actually this wealth tax encourages actively billionaires to liquidate their wealth, turn it into cash and buy political influence with their wealth. And so it encourages some behaviors that normally uh, most people who probably support a wealth tax uh, would find uh, something they don't want. More vacations for CEOs, more political influence for them. That doesn't sound like something that we want. And so there's there's the secondary problem of the incentives that it creates. Yeah. The other thing, I I think the reason why, I'm sure this has been explored a hundred times since the income tax was really established uh, around 1913. So we're just a little over a hundred years with having an income tax at all which is a different topic because I'd probably be up for abolishing the income tax for that matter and move towards a national sales tax. But we we might dabble in that topic a little bit, but we'll try to stay focused on income versus wealth tax since that's the the topic. So in a sense, wealth is taxed through the income tax indirectly in a sense, because another thing I think that might get glossed over is that your assets are generating the income that you have. And so if they're really good assets, they're generating decent profits, and that is the source of the income that then gets taxed anyway. So in a sense, wealth is taxed through the uh, income in that way, and we certainly, I would not be a fan of adding on another tax to mucky up the system already. I'd be much more in favor if we have to do something to the rich would be to keep what we got if we can't eliminate it altogether and just increase the higher income brackets and you will effectively be in a sense taxing the wealth of the wealthy anyway, indirectly through the income that they generate from the assets that they own. Yeah. Another way to think of wealth is just savings, right? And uh, we all, you know, savings to be savings has to be earned and we already tax it as income. Uh, Does anyone think we are in this country saving too much? No. Is that a no. behavior that we want to discourage? I mean, and there's, there's even a third indirect tax on wealth. And in fact, it's a little more direct, which is the estate tax. You know, at death, you've got a certain amount of your property that's taken away from you based on whatever the tax rate is. Mm-hmm. And so this presents another issue is that there are several different taxes we could use to tackle the same problem, which is usually proposed for the wealth tax. The problem is there's too much inequality. And how do we solve that? Well, a wealth tax is one way, but we already have a whole code for an estate tax. Why not increase the estate tax or why not increase a, a different tax? Even if we accept that inequality is a problem and we accept that it's because it's the top 1% that 
who are driving the inequality, which is questionable, which we might get into. Uh, we still have a pro this problem of, is this the best way to do it, a wealth tax? And for reasons that I talked about, and uh, both Justin and Russ have touched on, it's questionable whether the wealth tax would even be the best way to do it. I would really wish you would stop giving these people ideas on easier ways to do it. <laughs> Fair point. Well, and I, I've seen a couple things on the land, on land tax. So taxing land, the raw value of land, basically use it as the only source of tax revenue. So then land owners would be that because land's not movable. So in terms of, you know, people being able to move their wealth overseas to dodge, whether it's a wealth tax or an income tax for that matter, if somehow land was the source of tax. Uh, I'm not a fan of this one either, but that is ultimately a, an interesting proposition in terms of the movement of land. But then, you, of course, you just sell the land that you have. It's still transferable, and then you buy land in the South Pacific. So you, you can still move to a different piece of land. But. Isn't that historically like the Georgist School of Economics? Uh, Henry yeah. George. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Henry George, yes. Yep. And that's where the video was that I, I know I've shown in my one of my classes, so... So um, why, I want to play a little devil's advocate. So they've got plenty of money anyway. Let's go back to we know how to spend it and inequality. Why is the distribution function a problem? You know, why, I, I don't care that they're going to move it. I just know that they're wealthy. And as long as I, don't, as long as I know that they're losing their money, that makes me happier. Well, I don't care that it's inefficient. You economists are stupid. Well, one of the problems is we have to look at what the result of wealth is when a person holds it versus the result of wealth when the government holds it. So this is one of the issues is, you know, maybe you would be happy if Zuckerberg had less money just to spite him, right? Or, you know, pick, pick your least favorite CEO, whoever that is. Maybe you just want that person to be worse off. But there's the possibility that them being worse off could also make you worse off. And so there's still a trade-off you have to negotiate. And the reason for that is, Zuckerberg, for whatever faults you might find in him, has actually been pretty good at picking and choosing the ways that he can grow wealth the best. Uh, that's how his wealth has grown in the first place. In fact, that's true of most of the top billionaires is they're really good at picking the successful businesses and startups to invest in with their wealth in order to grow it. And those startups succeed and they produce a lot of value for society. So you as a consumer benefit from that. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, can you know Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell or uh, you know, Joe Biden, if he gets elected, do we trust those people or whoever in government ends up owning the capital, which Justin brought up earlier, owning, you know, the means of production? Do we trust those people to be as good of investors as Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, I don't think so. And if the answer to that is no, then society actually loses wealth as a whole because all those nice startups that grew because of, you know, these greedy capitalists investing in them uh, no longer exist because, uh, Joe Biden wanted to invest it in something else, or Donald Trump wanted to invest it in a golden rocket to the moon or something like that. Well, this looks like a good spot for our break. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask, push Peter a little bit on that to say, were they really good or were they really lucky? So we'll pick up there after the break. By 2030, the Gorney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the institution for a challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. 
All right, welcome back. So, lucky or uh, really productive and smart and know all the answers? How about, what's the balance? Was a guy like Zuckerberg just lucky? Some people call him a thief, right? In that Facebook movie, what were the two twin brothers that basically. Winklevi. Yeah, yeah, they, they're thinking they got robbed. So, maybe is it thievery? I don't know. So, what do you think about that, Peter? Well, on the, the, the first part of the lucky aspects, um, we'll, we'll start with. So the question is, is Zuckerberg lucky? And my response is the nice thing about a capitalist system or a free market system is it actually doesn't matter uh, if Zuckerberg's lucky. Because if he was lucky once, he, he's not a good judge of how to use wealth at all. And he just got lucky and he made a ton of money. You know, he's lucky and he wins that time. But if he keeps going and he's, you know, his luck runs out. Otherwise, if he's just systemically lucky, well, then great. We should have him in charge. Uh, but if he, if, he's, if he runs out of luck and he starts doing poorly, he will start making losses. And he'll make losses until his wealth, his ability to uh, choose bad startups is gone. The problem with uh, throwing the ball in the government's court is the institution of government's different. Government does not make profits and losses. Donald Trump does not make a profit depending on what is produced by the U.S. government compared to its costs. That's not what Donald Trump does, uh, nor would Joe Biden, nor does any politician. They're not residual claimants, is sometimes the term in economics, of the profit. And so government can be systemically wrong, and all they have to do is take on more debt and tax more, and they'll never go out of business, whereas Zuckerberg will eventually run out of his and everybody else's wealth, and no one will lend to him anymore. And so I would say the solution is really in the system. It's not in the person. And the system of government just doesn't have an effective solution for the problem of profit and loss. This gets back to Ludwig von Mises in the, the 1920s, his, his critique of socialism. I think some would argue, though, that the luck, it, it is important. And maybe Justin can chime in on, on some sort of philosophical angle that if he was lucky, then it's moral for that riches to be shared with people in some way shape or form if it was luck as opposed to merit but i don't know if that um you know would fly but i could i could hear people saying that because i thought even president obama at one point interjected luck continuously to kind of show like hey we're, we should all get kind of some sort of semi-equal share i don't think he was arguing for you know absolute of course income equality somehow but Basically, hey, you got lucky. You should you should spread that around. That should be spread around. And so, uh, what do you think, Justin? First of all, you didn't build that. Right? That was the <laughs> Obama uh, critique. Ah, um, right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, um, which is that you know, oh, you know, you, you made a great company, but you didn't build that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the government did all these things to help you along the way. Or, and, yeah. Uh, uh, let's just set that to the side for a second. <laughs> um, so, on the question of luck, my intuition is, is the same answer as Peter's with maybe, maybe a slightly different, but sympathetic explanation. So the answer is who cares? Uh, I don't care. First of all, I don't know what a good philosophical definition of luck means absent us solving the free will problem. <laughs> uh, so, so I, you know, I, I don't care whether or not it was lucky, but Let's say that it was luck, right? Um, and Peter's right that if it's, you know, if it was luck and, you know, he was just isn't uh, lucky all the time, then he's going to, you know, lose that money anyway. But let's say he is lucky all the time. And you might say, that's even, see, you know, this, look at this lucky guy. He's even richer. Well, for that to even count as luck in a capitalist system, what that means is he has to be shepherding capital in a way that it is generating more and more wealth. So his very act of being lucky is already benefiting everybody else. That is the point of 
making a profit in a capitalist system is that he has a buyer, right? Um, so if he is generating wealth, you know, he, if he is growing the pie, he's already making everybody else bigger. Uh, you shouldn't be asking uh, old Zuck for a handout. You should be uh, asking to thank him. That's, <laughs> and I really don't like Mark Zuckerberg. So uh, just throw that in there at the end. <laughs> so you could probably say it's almost like he's won the lottery over and over again. He could just super lucky. Uh, if his winning the lottery also generates money for everybody else, right? right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it wouldn't be like us putting in money and Zuckerberg getting it. It would be like, you know, Zuckerberg doing something. And all of a sudden you look over and you go, Zuckerberg, your bank account's huge. And he goes, yeah, but I've been depositing stuff in your bank account too. Um, well, uh, to me, the thing that's, I think, easy for the easier for the average Joe to be short-sighted on is that the... Uh, multi-millionaire or billionaire um, is somehow sitting on this cash, right? So I got lucky and now I just have piles of dollar bills in my house that I'm just sitting on. And so maybe they're not, maybe they are to some, some degree taking it easy, so to speak. But if they're taking it easy and they got that much money, they probably have it invested in let's say at least the index funds or something, right? So they, they've actually put money back into the system and they own a S&P 500, for instance, or whatever. And so that, that could be sitting back, not really being active is what I'm trying to say, like Zuckerberg looking for the latest, greatest deal and building something, adding something to society that's as valuable as Facebook or, or otherwise. So if they're sitting on it, the thing that I think people can be short-sighted on is that that money is actually active and in a free market getting into the hands of private individuals in some way, shape or form. So if they take an even easier route and they just put their money into something really dumb like certificate of deposit, right? So you got a billion dollars in CDs. What does that mean? Well, you've actually put it into uh, more or less something that's super safe. But what that's allowed the bank to do is to make loans to other Jacob Cottles who are going to start their own business. And now there was funds available for that to get back into private hands. And so truly the system in a free market, uh, you've got money reaching the right places through a whole bunch of trial and error experiments. Whereas on the flip side, as Peter was saying, if, if it gets into the government hands, now you have relatively small group of individuals making choices that can have large-scale impacts across the economy. And so when they screw up, it hurts a lot more than the pluses and minuses of a whole bunch of screw-ups and a whole bunch of positives uh, tend to give momentum of getting um, uh, capital out to the right places. And that's part of the reason we hang our hat on uh, the free market as opposed to maybe more government-driven decisions. So. Yeah, I agree with that. And one other thing, if you're a little bit skeptical, because I know some people are, that like Zuckerberg being rich helps other people out. One great case that we just had that shows this uh, is what happens when profits dry up. And we saw that with the coronavirus shutdown. So a lot of companies' profits dried up, and we saw workers get furloughed, uh, furloughed or fired, or yeah. entire companies shut down. Mm -hmm. And so when there's more profits, these companies are hiring workers and all that. And so that income is going into their company and it's, it helps out the laborers as well as all the people who own the capital. When profits dry up, if a business is not producing profit, that goes away. And we did see an example of that. The, the coronavirus and the, the subsequent shutdowns were a perfect example of what happens when profit dries up. And 
the thing that if we care about the poor or people that are in, let's say, lower income brackets. Let's just say that we do care about them. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, and, and we do. Uh, at the Wharton Institute, that is one of our uh, mission, uh, mission lines. So uh, it disproportionately hurts those people is where I was going. So the corporations, they can kind of ride out the storm. Here we got mom and pop on Main Street with COVID shut down and Walmart's open. I just heard something. The online sales doubled. And in-store sales were up by 9% for Walmart over the second quarter of 2020. Double. I mean, we're just like through a government policy, basically handed them that type of, and of course, uh, Amazon's probably in no different boat. I just happened to hear the the data on on Walmart. So it's just, uh, it's really uh, sad to think now the politicians are throwing out the crumbs and a few credits here and small business loans and other things to try to correct that. But Again, that decision, again, it, it's hard hindsight 2020. Um, I, I think the shutdown was appropriate, but it probably should have been lifted a lot quicker when we had that heavy uncertainty. We kind of talked about that with the last uh, podcast. And then these other places that are still currently shutting down, I just I just don't think the data is there to support a shutdown anyway. Well, these policies were also advocated by people who, if you ask them, will say that they loathe Walmart. Yeah. Which is... right. Uh, but yet, yeah, but yet they do stuff yeah, that they shut down. Yeah, helps yep. it. Yeah. Which well, is good evidence of the point we were talking about earlier that, you know, you can't just have a solution. You can't just identify a problem and identify a solution. Your solution actually has to work the way that you imagine it will. And your and solution so, can't be judged on the intentions either. That's right. It, it ha- the results have to matter. And so you can say you hate Walmart all day, but if your policy makes them richer, whether it's a wealth tax policy that disproportionately affects smaller businesses with a little less wealth or a coronavirus shutdown policy, uh, this, your solution's not sufficient if, if you have that problem. Jacob, a lot of our listeners care about uh, the 18 to 20-year-old that's going to carry the nation later. Do they give a darn about any of this? Or, I mean, is it on the radar at all? Or is it all about Fortnite and, and uh, <laughs> ordering the next pizza and, and uh, <laughs> dodging mask wearing at a party? Uh, well, I know at least the people I hang out with we, we like to wear masks around in public because we don't want to get stuck with having to quarantine. Sure. Um, and, and Fortnite's kind of died out. It's more like Apex Legends now. But uh, <laughs> no. Um, Once again, I date myself. <laughs> I don't really see anybody paying attention much to taxes on whether it's going up or down. They kind of just... Well, how about this? When a politician like... Uh, comes out and says we're 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 going to have taxes so that the message is basically let's forgive student loan debt and increase taxes on the rich how does that sit with the average 18 to 20 something that's in college well if you're forgiving my student loan debt that sounds pretty good to me <laughs> exactly yeah exactly and so I, I think that that's just the same story that's been told in the united states for 50 years i i, I don't i don't think there's any way to break that or change that i think it's just normal they're kind of pursuing their own window of time in the next four years and their self-interest would say that type of policy sounds good with their covid parties and there is some hope on this i think though uh and so- this was actually mentioned in the debate that I talked about earlier that we'll link uh, to in the podcast description, but it's that a lot of European countries have passed and subsequently repealed wealth taxes. 
for the reason that when the wealth tax was pr proposed, it sounded really good to everyone. Yeah, like get, get the rich people until they realized in the wealth tax was moved to such a low level uh, that, you know, the what's called the married rich couples started to get taxed. In other words, people who own a million dollar home, their wealth started to get taxed because a home counts as wealth. Yeah. And so the, the nice thing about policies is, you know, when you're young, you maybe have some like rational ignorance that it's costly to learn about taxes and it doesn't affect you very much. But when you get older, you're going to start to notice uh, hey, why, why is more coming out of my check? Why does the government now own 1% of my house? What, what's going on with that? So, uh, Nate, what did you want to say about compounding or something? Oh, I was going to actually just go off of uh, Jacob's stuff, what we just talked about, young age and taxes. I don't think, is it scary that we don't know a lot yet? Is, <laughs> is that how you guys were? Because if the wealth tax is, is proposed and they come after the youth who, don't, who are in college and that sounds, that appeals to them. But we don't understand that the, the dramatic effects of the wealth tax and how uh, earlier Dr. Clark was talking about how it adds up. And if they take more percentage and more percentage, it can really hurt you in the long run. Yeah, kind of that compounding wipe out things. And at the end of the day, we do always have to step back of whose hands are it going, is it going into. So I think that we've covered some good ground that way. Well, I wanted to bring up faith a little bit since this is the Faith and Economics podcast. And so as a Christian, should we care, or you could be a person of any faith, but I'm thinking about the Bible. Should we care if there's a wealth tax or not, or is that completely off the table? I mean, in what ways, you know, should, uh, from a, if you're looking from a, through a biblical lens, is the wealth tax okay, we're indifferent, it's right, it's wrong? give to Caesar what is Caesar's um, and my faith life is over here and my tax life is over here and never two shall they never shall the two cross. Thoughts on that one? I guess I can start that one off. Uh, a couple things on that. The, the first is that there, there, I think there is some sort of interest, you know, in the Bible and through Jesus' teaching in alleviating poverty. And, and I really do think that Jesus taught, you know, by example, uh, not that we can follow that example perfectly or anything like that, but taught by example that we need to watch out for the poor and the poor among us who will always be among us. And so I think that's very important. But I see that really as a different issue than what the wealth tax is trying to address, which is inequality. Um, I don't see, you know the fight against inequality anywhere specifically in the Bible, if everyone's getting richer. And in fact, it could be the opposite. If there's a trade-off, if making people more equal makes people more poor, I could see it actually being directly against the message of Christ, pursue equality, equality at the expense of everybody's well-being. Uh, to me, that's, that's uh, envy and, and a, a, a deeply problematic sin and, and something we can't escape on this earth, but uh, we still should not pursue. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. I think we're, we're called to be good stewards of the resources. And so we, I think as economists, if we empirically see that a wealth tax is driving wealth away and making poorer people poorer, yes, it's making rich people poorer too. Um, but uh, I've always been one to to think about the, the poor rather than the gap. And I think part of it, I, I like that you brought up envy. I think that's part of it too, is that there seems to be this thing of, of uh, looking over at the relativeness uh, of my neighbor versus where I'm at in life. And I think that's just part of the human condition. The other thing I would say is I, I would think that maybe the teaching is something like, look, whether or not there's a wealth tax, you still have a duty to the poor and you have a duty to prevent, you know, and to alleviate poverty. 
as best you can, regardless of how much the government is taking out, uh, taking out of your paycheck. Um, and, you know, it's not that the government is the keeper of your brother and you should advocate policies where the government is the better keeper of your brother. It's that you are the keeper of your brother. Right. And so um, you can say, like, uh, look, I don't like the wealth tax. Um, and uh, that's perfectly consistent with doing a lot in your community to alleviate poverty. And if the government is taking a bunch out of your paycheck, too, and there's still poverty in your community, I think that uh, the biblical reading is you're still responsible for that, too. Mm. But what I think is a real problem is this idea that I'm going to kind of shirk my individual responsibility yes. to give to charity and advocate for a policy where the government is going to do it instead. Yes. Yeah. I'm doing my job by voting for the person in office that's going to take it from the rich and then I'm done. Yeah. yeah. So that's the. Uh, kind of a crowding out effect that, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. That falls more on the individual uh, and not so much on the government setup. Um, but at the same time, we can still advocate that ways, I think. And, and different people are called to different things. Maybe us as economists are called a little bit more to uh, raise that attention, maybe have some sort of impact on policy and, and influence uh, young minds in the classroom that, uh, that might not be a good idea. So, all right. What was your analogy on wealth, Justin? That might be a good way to close out the show today. Oh yeah. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're a farmer and you know, you need to make sure that you have uh, crops for next year, you know, let's just take the example of corn. You, you, you actually need to keep some seed corn so that you can plant it for next year so that you have something to regenerate the amount of corn that you, you know, that you generated this year. And, you know, if at the end of the year, um, you're, you know, let's say you even had a little bit of a shortage this year. You didn't produce as much corn as you thought you would. You might be tempted, well, you know, we're kind of hungry. Let's just go eat all that seed corn instead. But once you do that, once you eat into the stock of things that is supposed to be producing the future things, you are, you are in big trouble very quickly. And so one of the ways to think about a tax on wealth is that it really is just a way to consume seed corn. It is a way to consume savings where, you know, as you pointed out earlier, uh, you know, a rich person's savings, they aren't under his bed. They are going out into the economy. That money is being used by firms to purchase capital goods so that laborers can use machinery to produce items that are sold, that thereby generate the wages that get paid to the laborer. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the idea that what we ought to do instead is consume that wealth, right? Make the capitalists sell um, that property so it can be immediately consumed by somebody um, who you can watch civilization um, consume all of its savings, which is yeah. the method by which it generates wealth for the future very quickly. Yeah. I like that. Cause I, I think that's really hitting on the idea of uh, people who are favoring redistribution would say, well, the rich guy's going to spend it or the poor guy's going to spend it. I want the poor guy to spend it. And that money's going to stay in the economy anyway. Well, that argument falls flat with what you just said in terms of that is the person who had it, had it in a productive means of some sort, and we're shifting it to consumption. So truly, we're eating the seed corn potentially with, uh, with a redistribution like that so, and favoring consumption. All right. Well, that looks like a good thought here to end. Uh, appreciate you all listening today to this production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. Uh, we certainly appreciate it and want you to pass the word to your friends. And one way to do that is with a little five-star rating on your uh, podcast app. Uh, help us rise through the ranks and, of course, forwarding it along 
to your friends with the share function on your podcast, that might be a great way too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.